Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Good to see the cooks here. Do I need to call you pastor? Does he know you're here? Amen. It's good. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Amen. Good to have them with us here tonight. Amen. <laughs> Acts 13 and verse number 13. The Bible states these words. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia. John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they had departed from Perga, they came into Antioch of Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue consent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. One of these lessons, sometimes in the distant past, I, I entitled it Preach Jesus. Tonight, I mean, we go so long in this, you just got to get creative now. <laughs> no, I'm just saying that topics for lesson are different from talk, topics for preaching. Topics for lesson in some ways are just placeholders. But I want to talk to you tonight about Paul preaches Jesus. Because again, we've switched characters from Peter now to Paul as we've seen in the book of Acts. Paul preaches Jesus. And we're going to look at the sermon, uh, the first recorded sermon that we have the Apostle Paul here in Acts 13. We will not finish Acts 13. I will not be here next Wednesday. That will be Bishop. My wife and I will be at Deluge over in South Carolina. This is just one of those months where just kind of touch and go. Amen. Don't know if I'm your pastor or not. I just don't know what's going on. But, uh, but nevertheless, if you'll bear with us. Acts 13. Paul preaches Jesus. This is part 30 in our Book of Acts series. Father, I come to you this evening. God, I'm so grateful tonight, Lord, to be here. God, again, to center our lives around about the Word of God. Lord, the Word, God, that speaks of you, that brings, Lord, eternal life. God, I thank you, Jesus, this evening. God, for this opportunity, I do not want to take it lightly. God, I want to be mindful, Lord Jesus, of you, Lord, in each and everything, God, that we say or what we do. Mark air from my mouth, Lord, and speak in an understandable manner and way. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. You may be seated tonight in Jesus' name. Do thank Bishop and uh, Brother Mason for taking care of services this past weekend. Amen. Don't have anything to fear. I know it's always in good hands when it's left in their hands. Amen. Acts 13. There's been a notable change. A notable change has taken place in Acts chapter 13 here. Uh, whenever we started our study of Acts 13 in particular, the, 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 the wording in which of Barnabas and Saul has been after that fashion. Barnabas has always preceded Saul. It's been Barnabas and Saul. They were called and sent by the church at Antioch to start on their journey. Uh, whenever Sergius Paulus even called for them, he called for Barnabas and Saul in that order. And that, 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 that takes some reasoning throughout the scriptures because usually whenever uh, individuals named first in a list of names, they were uh, the leader or they were the one that uh, was, was uh, the responsible party, so to speak. And that's the way it was in verse number 2 and verse number 7. The order of the names was Barnabas and Saul. But when we come to verse number 13 where we started our scripture selection here tonight, the Bible says now when Paul and his company. It's as though there has been a change. There has been a, a dynamic change where Barnabas to begin with seemed to be the leader of the pack, so to speak. Now Paul is taking the lead among the company. And what's probably more interesting than Paul being mentioned first is that we don't hear a complaint from Barnabas. Let me tell you, that is probably more interesting, folks. I'm telling you right now. Okay. That Barnabas didn't have anything to say negatively about... Brother Mason, if I were to speak of it in leadership terms, those are leadership, I guarantee you Barnabas was probably a nurturer. He liked all the relationships. 
Amen. And so in verse number nine, though, then the Bible specifies concerning uh, this man by the name of Saul that we know to be Paul. Saul was undoubtedly his Jewish name. And his name, Paul, was the one that he used that mainly whenever he was in Gentile uh, environments. And for that reason, for the most part, from here forward, we see that he is mostly then uh, known to us as the Apostle Paul because he would spend the greater part of his ministry in Gentile environments, just like the Bible told us in Acts 9 through Ananias, that he would be a minister, a chosen vessel that would bear the name of Jesus among the Gentiles. And then we get this little tidbit that John Mark, who had started to be a helper for both of them, we learn of in chapter 13, or in verse 13 and verse 14, Luke doesn't elaborate, elaborate on it, but John Mark departs from the group. Amen. It's only mentioned as a footnote. We don't have any gross or grueling details why he departed, but he departed from the group. And uh, we don't understand particularly why. We're not given any information. We do know from a later account, though, that Paul was evidently displeased with John Mark uh, for departing from the group. And so there's some displeasure on Paul's part with John Mark, but we don't know the true reason for him leaving. Anything that we would come up with would be pure speculation, and we can speculate. Uh, that being said, one assumption why John Mark may have left the group is because the terrain that Barnabas and Paul are on the verge of covering and the environment that they are going to be traveling in. Uh, from the, 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 the sake of geography from Perga to Antioch and Poseidon, I understand was a very harsh terrain. It was hundreds of miles from Perga to Poseidon, and it was a vertical climb of some 3,600 feet. So we're not talking about easy go here. Not only that, the path, that treacherous, ragged, cliffhanger-type road from Perga to Antioch also was known, according to historians, to be regularly raided by bandits and by robbers. It could be, again, pure speculation. Maybe John Mark says, that's not for me. I'm not interested in going 100 miles, 3,600 feet up over treacherous terrain and to be taken advantage of by bandits and robbers. Perhaps he departed as a result of that. But nevertheless, whenever Paul and Barnabas and that company has made this trip now unto Antioch of Poseidon, not to be confused with the other Antioch, the Bible says that they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This was a strategic move on their part, not just for the fact that they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, but that whenever the Jews were scattered abroad from Jerusalem, as a result of the persecution of the early church, they, they separated themselves from the mother city, Jerusalem. If they were scattered, they separated themselves from the temple. And as a result of that, they would formulate synagogues in these other cities and towns that they would find themselves in. And to keep their identity and to uh, maintain their faith, they would go to the synagogues on the Sabbath to maintain both of those, their identity and their faith. That's a very good idea for going to church. To maintain your faith and keep your identity. And so this is what they would do. They were separated from Jerusalem, separated, if you will, from the mother church. And so they had these synagogues they would go to. And so typically in a synagogue service, even still today, Orthodox Jewish people, typical in a synagogue service would follow a certain pattern. They would start out, they would read or they would quote Deuteronomy 6, Namely, somewhere around verses 4 through 9 where we say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And talking about you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And, and how you're going to uh, talk about these things when you rise up, when you go to bed. All those things. They would first start out by quoting or reading that. And then they would pray. And after they would pray, they would read some from the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and they would read from the prophets, all right, a little portion of Scripture. Uh, they would read all the way through the law in a seven-year period, all the way through the prophets in a seven-year period in the synagogue. This is what they do. They just read a little bit of it. And then after they had done that, then there would be someone that would stand and they would instruct or they would teach on, on the Torah or the Word, if you will, for our, our, our purposes, for, uh, on the Word of God. And if there was any guest among them, any, might I denote, competent guest among them, 
uh, they would have that individual entertain them. Do you got anything you would like to say? Because they might have been a, a visiting rabbi or so on and so forth. And they, that's what happened to, to Paul and Barnabas. They're here in this service. Uh, the law and the prophets have been shared from. And then this invitation has been given to Paul and Barnabas if they would like to exhort these believers in any way. And so Paul was strategic in that. He went to the synagogue first because, number one, he knew Jewish people were going to be there. Number two, he knew Gentiles who had converted to Judaism was going to be there. So he's kind of getting his foot in the door knowing where uh, the believers are or where converted Gentiles are so that he could go from there. And so he, he, he addresses those two segments of people. He talks to the one in his opening statement about men of Israel, which would have been the Jewish people. And then he speaks to them that fear God. And the God-fearers usually relates to Gentiles who has been converted unto Judaism. And so he's speaking to these two people, and he starts his sermon. And according to just the verses, if you want to just count verses of Scripture, a pretty lengthy sermon. Thank God for the Apostle Paul. And he speaks a very lengthy sermon, and his message is not much different from his predecessor Peter. It's not much different from his or, or from Stephen. They do what they do. They start all the way back concerning the history of Israel because Jewish people like to hear about themselves. I have, a, I have a firm right here from Brother Mason who has been over and have dealings with some people. They like to hear about themselves. And so when you start talking about their history, honey, you got their attention. They're going to ride, ride along with you. So they would start concerning the history of Israel in some manner and way, hit the tops of the trees concerning the history of the Jewish people. And then he would lead things right up into the concept of their Messiah, and marry the idea, as oftentimes does, that Jesus Christ, who you crucified, was your Messiah. <clears throat> and so there's that, that moment then that they have to reckon with. And then as you guys have, have slain him, God, though, on the other hand, has raised him up. And finally, it always leaves the people then at a crossroads. Since this is what has happened, you have a decision to make. You have a choice to make concerning your lives with Christ Jesus. If you'll allow me tonight, I want to read verses 17 through 23. I want to read Paul's sermon. I know we don't just stand up here and read people's sermons every day, but I want to read a portion of Paul's sermon starting in verse number 17 as he recounts the history of the children of Israel. And I'm going to place some emphasis on some words and let's just see if you catch it. The Bible says, Then God of this people of Israel chose our fathers, and exalted the people when they were as strangers in the land of Egypt. With a high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And he, he's still speaking of God, had destroyed seven nations in the land of Chanaan. He divided their land to them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul is talking to the Jews about their own history, which in reality, as you've heard it said before, was his story. And the story is about how God all along their history has been intervening, bringing things about, setting the stage, if you will, for when he would manifest himself in a man known as Jesus Christ. Look at it, if you will, again. Now, the, uh, the Israelites, man, these, he, these Jews, man, they are listening. He's talking about us, that us, that's right. And so he's got their attention talking about their beloved nation. But look how instrumental God is in all this. If you look through the verses, God chose Israel. God exalted them in their bondage. God delivered them. God endured their manners or their habits of misdeeds in the wilderness for 40 years. 
God destroyed seven nations that were greater than them and mightier than them in order to get them into the land of Canaan. And then God divided the land and gave Canaan as their inheritance. God gave them judges to aid them in times when they needed deliverance. And God gave them a king named Saul that they requested. And God gave them another king. David, who he said was a man after my own heart, and through the lineage then of David, God would give them a Savior, Jesus. You cannot read that first part of Paul's sermon, and while he might be talking about the Jews, see that there is the handiwork and the intervention of God all along through their history. He wanted them to understand without doubt, although I told you you're my treasure box and you're my special people and you feel pretty good about this, I want to emphasize the God that was at work in you as a nation to bring you to where you are. We could tonight, if I had enough time, we could take anybody's life in this place and retell your history emphasizing the handiwork of God. Well, you, Brother McGee, I've only been in church for 10 years. I'm saying before those 10 years you was even in church, we could start making the connection of the handiwork and the intervention of God in your life that's brought you even to this moment where we stand right now today. And so the culmination of everything that Paul was bringing the children of Israel or the Jewish people to, the culmination, the climax then for history in Paul's estimation was this. God would give you a Savior and then it's putting a name on the Savior. It's putting a name on their Messiah. It's putting a name on the one that they expected to come that they were looking for and he calls him a name. He says, Jesus now see, that, that, that troubles thing because all along the journey in Israel's history, yes, they were looking for their Messiah. Yes, they were looking for their Savior. The prophets of old had prophesied about it, talked about it. They were looking after it. But whenever Paul identifies him as Jesus, that changes the dynamic because they were kind of an ostrich with their head in the sand of wanting to accept that Jesus Christ had been their Messiah. So he is setting them up up amen to understand that your messiah your savior he'll come to find the one that you decided to kill and you took a vote on and whenever Pilate says release him you say no crucify him jesus that was your say that was your man the bible continues in verse number 24 if i start reading the wrong verse it's because the wind has changed my page here the Bible says, and as John fulfilled his course, speaking of John the Baptist, he said, whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you fear of God, to you is this word of this salvation sin. So here is the crux of their realization once again. They understand whenever Paul names the, the Christ, the Savior, as being Jesus, they understand once again, all these people, we have crucified our Messiah. Jesus was indeed our Messiah. That, and here's what it is, folks. It was prophesied. There are hundreds upon hundreds of prophecies concerning Christ Jesus and his role of being the Messiah, his role of being the child, his role, everything, what we're about ready to look toward here, Resurrection Sunday, everything that happened on the cross, all the different prophecies that were fulfilled through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are innumerable. There are hundreds upon hundreds of them in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. One case in point was it was prophesied that the Messiah would be the heir to King David's throne. All right? The Bible says in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12, And when thy days be fulfilled, this is Samuel speaking to David, When thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of the, thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Most people are thinking he's talking about Solomon. Well, it's kind of a dual fulfillment in what he's speaking about. Verse 13, he shall build a house for thy name. Well, Solomon did that. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, Solomon's going to die somewhere. But there's one in the lineage of David who likewise is going to have 
a built house, per se. And who's going to have a kingdom? And a kingdom that will last forever. And that is Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Isaiah 9 and verse 6, For unto us, do you know it? A child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne, what? Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. So there's, there's a couple of prophecies concerning the throne of David, concerning it being established forever. In Isaiah, namely, that this child that is born to be the one serving in that capacity. The fulfillment, though, thereof is in Luke 1 and verse 32. The angel of the Lord, Gabriel, tells Mary about Jesus, this child that she is to have, and says, He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Romans 1.3, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. In other words, Paul backs up a little bit and says, John came and John preached to you about baptism and repentance and things of this nature. He talked to you and said that he was not the Christ. That he wasn't that person, but there was a Christ. Namely, that would be Jesus Christ. He spoke to you about all these things. What Paul is setting up here, there are things he's saying that was prophesied years and years and years ago that came to pass through the man Christ Jesus. Can someone say amen? amen. Through the man Christ Jesus. And another one of those things that come to pass is this, is that the Bible prophesied that the Messiah would have someone go before him and prepare the way. Go and go before him, prepare the way. I don't mean to drag you through scriptures here tonight, but I'm doing it. Isaiah 40 and verse 3. The voice of him, Isaiah said, that crieth in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked place shall be made straight, the rough place is plain, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He said there is a voice that will cry in the wilderness that will prepare the way for our God. Paul's speaking about John the Baptist. Paul was, in our setting of Scripture, speaking about John the Baptist. John to be the forerunner, the heralder, the crier, if you will, that Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesied about. Now, Isaiah in the Old Testament spoke about. And the job description and responsibility of a heralder was this. It was their responsibility to precede a king as he was entering into a city with all this pomp and pageantry and entourage. As he would enter in, that person would precede them. It was his responsibility to announce to where he was going the approach of the king. Not only that, it was his responsibility to ensure that nothing uh, impeded the path of the king or the route of the king coming. If there were lakes on his way to that city, they had to build bridges over it before the king got there. There had to be a way that was prepared. Uh, there were things that were very high. They had to be leveled down. No rough terrain. It had to make a path for the king. And so the forerunner, all of his energy was in making preparations for the king. Amen. Not only that, but him heralding that the king was coming should likewise then, on the ears that that message fell, make the people that was expecting the king to get prepared. And with all that being said, whenever Paul is speaking about John the Baptist, he's just bringing forth this concept and idea again. This was something that was prophesied of old, that the Messiah would have a forerunner. He says, Jesus Christ has this forerunner, John. Your Savior, your Christ, your, 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 your Savior, your Christ is Jesus. And so John, he already admittedly stated, Paul re-underscores it. He admittedly says that Christ, I am not the Christ. John says, I am not the Christ, but there is one that's coming 
coming after me, he says. Whose shoes I'm not going to be able to unbuckle. It's, it's John the Baptist while he's baptizing. I believe it was close to Beth Arba. And Jesus shows up, that all-time quoted phrase, Behold the Lamb of God, he said, which what? Which taketh away the sin of the world. And he was speaking about Jesus. Someone say Jesus. Jesus. Speaking about Jesus. Luke 3 and 3 the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, and he came to all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This is speaking of John the Baptist. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, he's quoting Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough way shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation. Everybody say all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. The salvation of our God. Look, he said all these things are going to be smooth. We're going to make everything straight. All flesh shall see the salvation of our God. The salvation of our God was the man, Christ Jesus. He said all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. The salvation of our God was the man, Christ Jesus. As the angel had told Joseph, not the biological father of Jesus, but as the angel told Joseph in a dream, it said, thou shalt call his name, what? Jesus. For he shall what? Save? Parenthesis, salvation. His people from their sins. Now, now, now look at this. Look at this. Isaiah 40 and verse 5 where the prophecy was made. It said, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Speaking about this forerunner that would come and make place, it said, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Now, folks, reason here with me. Nobody could see the totality of the glory of God. No one could look upon him and live. Moses, even whenever he sought to see the glory of the Lord, he says, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll allow my presence to go before you. You can see the hinder parts of my glory, all right? But this, my Bible tells me, Isaiah prophesied, said there's going to come a man, a forerunner, going to make everything straight. All flesh, all, or, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. The only way that could happen is through a man, Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Isaiah said there's going to be a forerunner. He's going to make a herald. He's going to prepare the path. And everybody's going to see, witness all flesh, the glory of the Lord. But the way in which they did that is because the glory and the essence of God. Mm-hmm. Because in Christ Jesus was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The only way they could do that is through the man Christ Jesus. And as Corinthians tells us, in the face of Christ Jesus then was the light of the glory of God. The glory of the Lord was revealed and seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And so he's constantly trying to make a connection then between what they thought was their Messiah and who their Messiah was. And so he uses just a few little prophecies, but there's a whole lot of other prophecies, amen, that Jesus Christ fulfilled and who the Messiah was supposed to feel because Jesus Christ was the Messiah. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. The Messiah would spend some time in Egypt. Jesus Christ spent some time in Egypt. Amen. Fleeing from, if you will, the killings and the rages that were happening. Messiah was going to be betrayed. Jesus was betrayed. Messiah was going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. Messiah was going to sacrifice for their sin. Jesus sacrificed for their sin. He said, look, the limelight, look, the, the bells and whistles are going off. Can't you see everything that the prophets prophesied concerning the Messiah look at Jesus now he's fulfilled every last single one of them Jesus is your Messiah what it comes down to is this they were looking for an answer and they didn't realize the answer they were given folks it's really not much different than where we live today 
People are still looking for what they presume to be the right answer for them. And they're not recognizing the answer they have in Jesus Christ. But if we were to start, draw the lines. You say, you, you, you're looking for hope? Well, here it is. You're looking for joy? Well, here it is. You're looking for that? Well, here it is. They're missing it. And the very thing that they need to be accepting, they're rejecting. Because they're not recognizing him as their answer. Going on, Acts 13, verse 26. There he goes. He says, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, there's the Jews. Whosoever among you fear God, there's the Gentiles that's been converted. To you is the word of the salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and the rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. So Paul assures both Jew and Gentile, Gentiles that's been converted to the Jewish faith, that the word of salvation was to them. Them. Not Jew only. To them. And Paul answered some questions that the Jews didn't ask, but that's a trait of a good preacher. He's, he's, he's thinking of questions that's going through people's mind even without being asked and answering them in his preaching. And so Paul is answering the question the Jews didn't even ask. He tells them there in verse number 27, he says, you all crucified him. You didn't even know him nor the voices of the prophets which you read. Look at this every Sabbath day. That is something, that's something we just talked about er earlier. Every time they met together at the synagogue on the Sabbath, you know what they did? They read from the law and they read from the prophets. They had heard these prophecies. It's not that they weren't familiar with them. They had read these in their church. Time and time again, they had heard it and read it every Sabbath, but they didn't get it. It's capable of happening. Sad enough, it is capable of happening that you can go to synagogue, church, and you can hear from the word of the Lord, and you can still not get it. They killed their Messiah because he said, you didn't know him. And yet, in killing him, you helped fulfill the word of God, what God said about. I think this is a little bit of a message even maybe for us today that it's quite possible to attend church, read your Bible, and still not know the Lord in the way that each of us should know the Lord. We need a personal relationship with the Lord. One writer said it like this. He said, if you're ignorant of the written word, you inevitably be ignorant of the living in other words, if you're, you're, you're ignorant of the written word, you'll be ignorant of God himself. Even Jesus, when speaking to the Jews in John 5, 39, he said, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have life, and they are they which testify of me. Let's just break it down, just cut out the middle part just for a moment. Search the scriptures. They are they which testify of me. He says, whenever you read the word, you become more acquainted with who I am. You listen to the word, digest the word. To a true understanding of the scriptures will reveal Christ to you. A, a, a true understanding and wanting to know him will reveal him to you through and just by his simple word. Verse 29 tells us, I'm turning a page here. Verse 29 says that Paul said that they didn't take Jesus, they didn't take Jesus down from the cross until they fulfilled the prophecies about him. Now that's pretty awesome. In other words, nobody was taking Jesus down until everything that was written about him that should happen, happened. They didn't take him down pre-piercing, pre-vinegar. No, he says, whenever you took him down and you thought you were deciding when to take him down, but whenever you took him down, everything that was supposed to have been done was done. What are some of the things? The Bible speaks about them wagging their heads. That was prophetic. 
talked about them looking upon him. That was prophetic. Talked about casting lots for his clothes. That was prophetic. Talked about offering him a drink with, with, mingled with gall. That was prophetic. Talked about uh, him crying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? About into thy hands I commit thy spirit. All those things were prophesied. It all had happened. Talked about one, not one bone of his body would be broken. It didn't happen. Talked about how they would look upon him whom they pierced. They did it. Everything that was prophesied about him took place concerning that moment before they ever took him down from the cross. That's pretty awesome. And Paul says then what Peter had said, you killed him, God though raised him up in verse 30. Not only did God raise him up, but he goes on to tell him, and by the way, we got some witnesses. <laughs> That's always good. God raised him up, we got some witnesses. And, and, and 1 Corinthians 15 even says that at one time he appeared to above 500. So they got, they got some witnesses, not just saying uh, his disciples as well. Amen. Now look at verse 32. Look at verse 32. Page turned. Sorry. And we declare unto you glad tidings. How that the promise which was made unto the fathers. God hath fulfilled the same to us their children. In that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it also is written in the second psalm. Thou art my son this day have I begotten thee. There are three things that they reference, three Old Testament scriptures that Paul references in his sermon uh, concerning that the promise that was made unto their fathers, it was fulfilled, though, unto their children. In other words, the fulfillment of the promise was summed up in this, and this, these three things, this is what they all have in, in, in uh, the theme that runs between them all. All three of these things, what they have in common is the resurrection of Christ. The promise that was made to the fathers that was fulfilled for the children, what's summed up in all these is the resurrection of Christ. And this is what he quotes, first of all. Thou art, this is the Old Testament scripture, Psalms 2-7. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now, why very well that could allude to Jesus Christ being the only begotten son, all right? But more importantly, more so than being the only begotten son of God, or God in the flesh, or God incarnate, it is referencing, if you will, according to verse 34, Jesus' resurrection. Because Jesus being resurrected is spoken of as the first begotten or the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. The Bible says in Colossians 1.18, Paul speaking about Jesus, he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn or first begotten from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So... Because Christ resurrected from the dead, he says, here's another fulfillment. He said that, that my son, have I begotten thee? You were the firstborn, the first begotten from the dead. Well, Jesus, there was other people that was raised before Jesus. That is true. We've talked about this before in our study on the book of Revelation. I agree. There were other people that was raised from the dead prior to Jesus Christ. But Jesus is the only one that was raised from the dead and never died again. Lazarus going to die again. All those others, they're going to die again. Jesus, the only, he's, the, he's truly the first begotten, the firstborn from the dead because he never seen death again. That's only fulfilled in one person. That's Christ Jesus. He goes on and tells them further down in the scripture, another scripture that he references. He says, I will give you the sure mercies of David. That's a reference to Isaiah 55 and 3. He says, I will give you the sure mercies of David, the sure mercies of David, the sure covenant of David, and his seed after him. Now, you can't get the covenant of David if the legacy of David dies off and there's no one else to carry on the baton. All right? His seed after him. It could not happen if you had a dead Messiah. Could not happen. Those mercies continued through Jesus because though he went to the grave, he didn't stay in the grave. He came as the resurrected Christ. So the sure mercies or covenant of David was now able to continue and the throne continued to be occupied because that which they thought was dead was alive the third day and it continued. That only happens because of a resurrected Christ. It can only happen because of a resurrected Christ. Another promise or aspect of the promise that he made firm to them is from Psalm 16.10. He says, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. And verse 36 of Acts 13 does not want us to confuse this old phrase as 
pertaining to David, just like Peter didn't want the people to get confused that this pertained to David, because it plainly tells us that David saw corruption. David is dead somewhere. David is in a grave somewhere. Worms has eaten his flesh. He is seeing corruption. But in verse 37 concerning Jesus, it says he saw no corruption, but he had died. Yes, but he resurrected. So Paul is hammering at this fact. You killed your Messiah, but your Messiah is not dead. Everything that was prophesied concerning him, all your hope, peace, and all this, everything, your answer, you killed your answer, but your answer's not dead. He's not dead. And it's all because of this, ladies and gentlemen. He is resurrected. He got up from the grave. He is alive forevermore. He's the first begotten of the dead because he's still living. He's alive. So what that means for you, Israel, is there's still hope. What that means for you, Gentile, there's still hope. When you thought you cut yourself off from what you needed, I'm here to tell you he's still alive, able, willing, and ready to interact, to do Hallelujah. Let me tell you what people need to hear on Resurrection Sunday is what I'm talking about tonight. You thought there was no hope. You thought there was nowhere to turn around. You thought you couldn't make a U-turn. There's no change or possibility for your life. Honey, you've been so to lie. Although you think you've cut that off, it didn't stay dead. It didn't stay dormant. He's still alive, still able, still powerful, able to affect change. Yes. He's alive! All three of those Old Testament things hinges on the fact of a resurrected Christ. Resurrected Christ. Verse 37, and so he says, but he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Verse 38. Be it known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through his name, through, his, through this man, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. See, I, he's, he's like, <laughs> I don't know if he did. He probably didn't do this. But this is just me. It's like, I got gotcha. you. You thought you'd done the dastardly deed to doom yourself, but I got you. You resurrected, and through this man is preached. This is what you've been wanting, forgiveness of sins. And by him, this man who resurrected, all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. In other words, guys, two things have been afforded to you through Jesus Christ. And here's, what's, here's what the really the gut clincher is. Two things are afforded to you by Jesus Christ because he died and was buried and resurrected. You all didn't know what you was doing. You didn't even know him or recognize him. But what you did was not condemning him but helping out the fulfillment of prophecy. This is bizarre. <laughs> and he says two things have been afforded because of that. Now you have, a, you can take advantage of forgiveness of sins. And you can take advantage of justification. Justification being simply a little legal term that means you can have right standing and vindication in the eyes of the law of God. What's that mean? A person that had done wrong can receive justification. Now in the eyes of God, it's as though they didn't. He said, you couldn't get that under the law of Moses. The law that you've all lived by up to this point in time, you couldn't get that by the law of Moses. You couldn't get forgiveness of sins. You could get push forward sins for a year to be dealt with next year. You could get a covering for sin. You could cover, atonement was that. That's what it basically means, atonement, covering. You could get covering for sin. But you couldn't get sins taken away. He says, you, 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 couldn't get, you couldn't get justification. The law said, the law, what it did for you was show you, you wrong. 
measure, measuring stick, standard. I'm wrong. Help me out, law. Law says, I can't help you out. Sorry, buddy. All I can tell you is you're wrong. <laughs> Would you like people to tell you where you're wrong, but they can't tell you how to help? Get out of where you're at? That was the law. I can tell you where you're wrong, but I can't tell you how to get out of it. And so the law was weakened that it could not cor help correct a man. It could only tell where a man was. The Bible says in Galatians 3.24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, or our teacher, if you will, to bring us unto who? Christ. That we might be justified by faith. The law was weak in the fact that it could not correct us, but it was our schoolmaster. It taught us. It says, since you have something wrong, you need to go to somebody that can help make it right. There's only one that can do that. The man... Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by, justified by faith. That we can be put in good standing and vindication for our wrongs by faith. Now listen to me. I'm not getting into a real long tangent here. Just a short one. So we're not going into the book of Galatians and start going to talk about the whole thing of doctrine of justification by faith. But we will just a little bit. And that is this. This whole concept of justified by faith, as, as, as Paul said in his sermon here, Verse number 39, that all that believe are justified from all things. Or as the Bible states in several other places, including Galatians I just read to you, justified by faith. Let me tell you, that has nothing to do with this concept of easy believism, Christianity. Okay? Okay? Because the Greek word for believe, the English word believe in Acts 13, 39, has a meaning that incorporates obedience to Christ. It's not just belief or just faith. And we all know this. Faith isn't by itself anyway. But it's a belief and a faith that necessitates obedience. Obedience. And we know according to the book of James that faith is dead when what? It's by itself. Faith is dead when it's alone. Faith is non-existent without works. Faith is non-existent without obedience. Go on and read the faith Hall of Fame faith chapter of Hebrews chapter 11. And you're going to read that by faith such and such did. You hearing me? Action such and such. By faith Noah prepared. Noah just didn't believe it. But there was a work or an action, an obedience that was attached to his faith that he prepared an ark because he believed whenever God said it was going to rain, it's going to rain. And that, you hearing me? And so we're not talking about easy, easy believism here. The Bible says, and I, I'm hurrying to a close. I really am. Romans 8 and 1. The Bible says, there is therefore now no what? Condemnation to them which are in what? Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. I got it. Can I do this? Can I just read several verses here? Because it's, it's the Bible and it's good. Look at this. There, there's no condemnation. Let me say it like this. There is no wrong standing to those that are in Christ Jesus. All right? There's no wrong standing to those in Christ Jesus. Here, Romans 8 and 1. Guys, I'm going to read several verses. Honey, dear, amen. Continuing from there, look, just let me read it again. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of the life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do. We've already looked at this a little bit. In that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. All right? The, the miracle of Christ Jesus coming in the form of man, a sinless man, but the Bible says he became sin who knew no sin. And our sin, all sin, was judged in his flesh who knew no sin. The Bible continues, verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, we got the bad end of the deal, he got the bad end of the deal so we could get the good end of the deal. He took and became the sin so we could take and become his righteousness. That the righteousness of the law might be filled in us who walk not after what? The flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. 
But to be spiritually minded is life is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God or a carnal mind is virtually an enemy against God for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So you're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. If the spirit of God dwell in you. And if you, if you get in, we've said, if you get in him through baptism, and he gets in you through baptism of spirit, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So if there's no condemnation, yeah, you were justified by faith. But if you got his spirit, that faith came about with obedience because you were a repentant believer, a baptized in Jesus' name believer, and thus filled with the spirit believer. So your justification by faith wasn't just easy believism. It was a faith that was accompanied by Obedience that brought the spirit. I was baptized in him and he, his spirit, got in me. And when I found myself in him, I have no condemnation. I am justified. I know that's a long way around the dog patch to say what I'm saying, but that's the way it must be said. Mm, someone say amen. <laughs> that's how 1 Corinthians 6 and 11 says these words. And such were some of you given the long list of sinners, this and that, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified. What? In the name of the Lord Jesus, water baptism, and by the Spirit of our God, spirit baptism. We've already looked at Acts 5.32, I believe it is, that says the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. The Holy Ghost is given to those that obey him. Now listen. Obey in Acts 2.38 that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost is not salvation by works. Not saved by works. It's the, gift, it's the gift of God. But following Acts 2.38 is salvation by faith. And listen to me. Actually belief then in the works of Jesus Christ. Just follow me. Reason here with me. It is the work of God in the life of Jesus Christ that accomplishes salvation in each of us. And this is what I'm telling you. Repentance, your baptism, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost would avail nothing if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. You could repent all day long but if Jesus Christ had not done what he'd done, it would have no impact. You could get baptized in this water in the name of Jesus all day long. But had Christ not done what he had done, it would have no impact. Meaning this, Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection, his work, his work puts the effectiveness in my faith. That when I obey, something will happen. So, well, bless God, you, you all believe in works. You believe you got to repent, be baptized. You, baptize, you think you got to go down water in Jesus' name. You had salvation by works. Hogwash. I could obey that all day long, but if he had not done his work, it would profit me any, nothing. So, I, it's not salvation by my works. I do it today, and it's only effective because he did a work. Because. I'm tired of all this garbage. People tell me, you don't have to be baptized in Jesus' name. You don't have to go down and water. You're working for, I'm not working for my salvation, but I have faith that what Jesus did was powerful and what Jesus did was effective. And if I'll parallel, if I'll parallel what he has done, that I can have that happen for me. Salvation, his spirit. But it only works because he works. I don't know if I can get that through anybody's head tonight. 
Thank you, Brother Greg. Well, I, I repented, so I'm forgiven because I repented. Well, we're putting too much preface on the I. You repented and you're forgiven because Jesus died. Well, I got baptized in Jesus' name. And since I got baptized in Jesus' name, he remitted my sins. You're getting it all wrong. Yes, you got baptized in Jesus' name. But your sins were remitted because Jesus was buried. I went to an altar prayer and I lifted up my hands and I received the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Hold on, there's a lot of I there. Yeah, you went to the altar. Yes, you surrendered to him. But you had never got the spirit if he didn't get up out of the grave three days later. It's not my words. It is still salvation by faith, justification, justification by faith. But my obedience to what he has asked goes hand in hand. But still, if I obeyed, had not he obeyed, it would have meant nothing. So don't you dare tell me I've worked for my salvation. No, honey, there's someone carrying a heavier load than I ever thought about carrying. NBC, I'm going long. I'm sorry. I'm closing. You can stand, though. That's encouraging. That laughing up in the balcony needs to calm down up there. Finishes his sermon with these words. Verse 40 says, Beware therefore, lest that come upon you, which is spoken of in the prophets. He's referring to Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk. Behold, ye despisers, and wander and perish. God said in Habakkuk, I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall no wise believe, though a man. Declare it unto you. The dilemma in Habakkuk's day was this. God, in that day, was using the Chaldeans, a Gentile people, to chasten and punish his people, the Jews. And they couldn't grasp the concept that God would use a Gentile nation to chastise the Jewish people to set them straight. They didn't, couldn't grasp the idea that God would use a sinner people to set them in order. They could not grasp the idea. He says, if you all don't watch it, he says a similar thing's going to happen in your day. That what God's trying to do, you're not going to grasp. Because it just seems too profound to you. Because now in their day, what he's doing, God is using the life of a Jewish person to save both Jew and Gentile. And mankind's having a hard time grasping this idea and this concept. He said, if you don't watch it, there's going to come a work going to work in your day he says but you won't even believe it if a man would declare it to you he said that's what I'm trying to do I'm trying to declare this to you that your answer is in Christ Jesus I know you said that he was the son of Joseph and Mary he was just the son of a carpenter it's more than that he's come for the salvation of mankind he says I don't want you to miss this don't want you to miss this it may seem absurd to you. It may even seem somewhat unlikely to you. But don't you dare despise it. Don't you dare despise it and just wonder if by chance you would just perish. What Paul's telling them, just as gracious as he can, is guys, you got to believe. You got to have faith. You got to obey. You got to understand that your Messiah is Jesus Christ. He did die. He was buried. But he's resurrected. And he wants to provide forgiveness of sins for you. And justification by faith. That is always accompanied with obedience. He says you still got your answer. You still got your answer. And so Paul preaches. Jesus Folks, it's the best message that's ever been preached. I'm not talking about Paul's message. I'm talking about the message of Jesus. It's the best message that's ever preached. 
We will never preach a, we will never preach a sermon that is more intriguing with greater oratory skill, so on and so forth, than when we preach the message of Jesus. There'll be nothing more convincing. There'll be nothing any more powerful than the name of Jesus. Bishop, I have found in the years of life of my ministry, it, I mark it down on the calendar, Brother Daniel. I don't care what I've ever preached. I've never found myself going away with my head down thinking, man, this was just horrible whenever I just preached Jesus. Man, there's been times, Brother Greg, I've just started preaching, maybe, maybe Godhead concerning Jesus Christ. Honey, it's just like the Scripture says, like whenever the boys of Emmaus start talking about Jesus, he showed up. And whenever you start talking about him, whether it's a Sunday school lesson or whether it's preaching, you know what he happens to do? Man, he, he, likes, he likes to hear people talk about him. Be no greater message than the message of Jesus. And so this coming Resurrection Sunday, what we need is just all of us just to be able to propagate a message of Jesus as they come in these doors. I'm not here showcasing the music. I'm not here showcasing instruments. I'm not even showcasing your good personality, although you better be on good behavior. But whenever I mean that, I mean you better have a right attitude. But we are here to showcase Jesus. Anything else, anything else would be a cheap substitute for the answer that people need. They need Jesus. Oh, let's just bow our heads all across this place. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.